All right. You guys want to go and have a seat? Now you guys should come on up. Come on up. This, this actually is my first rodeo, so getting it all kind of backwards here. So, all right, well, here we go. This is uh, Chris and Bridgie and Heidi Cook. They're here with us again from uh, Philadelphia. And they'll probably tell you a little bit more about their story. But they're, uh, as Adam mentioned last week, uh, through the CMA, they are international mission candidates. And they're doing their home service uh, right now with the goal of uh, next year uh, being overseas in the mission uh, field. And they'll, they'll talk more about that. Uh, but God has put a, a special message uh, on Chris's heart, I think, to share with us this morning. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, so thank you guys uh, for being with us this morning. Yeah, so we're uh, the Cooks, and we live in Philadelphia, like Tony said. Um, we are currently in the tail end of our home service. So when you are missions candidates with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. You do a two-year home service, and that's what we're doing at Truvine in Philly. So we'll be finished that process in August when we will also have our second interview with the national office in Colorado. So before you get sent overseas, you have a series of four interviews. You go through psychological assessments, marriage assessments, physical assessments. You want to make sure you're all clear. So ordination, consecration. So we are checking off lots of boxes this summer, and we'll head to Colorado in August for our second interview, which is when we should find out um, a little more specifically as to where we're going, although we do believe we'll either be in Berlin or Paris. So if you want short-term missions trip to Europe later, you'll see our faces most likely. So it's exciting, and we're excited. This is our daughter Adelaide, or Heidi. She's seven months old. You're welcome to say hi or hold her. She's pretty social. So. <laughs> yeah. Good. All right. Thank you all for having us. And now that we're all very certain that I have, in fact, married up, I can begin with what I have to say this morning. I'm going to do my best not to stand in the way. I have a lot that's going to be coming up on the slides. So usually I'm a long planner. I'm somebody who likes to look ahead and get something together, and I feel like pastors say this all the time, but in specific for me this week, something that never happens happened, and God said, what you've been planning, that's wrong. You need to change that. You need to do something else. So I'm stepping out on a leap of faith today that my short planning from what being open to God's Spirit as I was praying about what I had to share this morning uh, would bring us to. And so I want to talk about the Great Commission today. Uh, This is something that is huge in the Christian and Missionary Alliance which is part of the denomination that we're all part of. And as someone who's in the CMA, the Great Commission is incredibly important to us, so much so that we put mission in the name of the organization that we have. And the reason I had to bring this up through much prayer and much consideration is uh, someone on Facebook this week pointed out something to me that was really uh, uh, a wake-up call. It just shook me when this person posted this up. Because this individual has been going through some weight loss. He's been losing five pounds a week for like six months, and he's really shedding the pounds. And when he posted that status, hundreds of likes, comments, what's your secret? How did you learn how to do that? Tell me more about how you're shedding those extra LBs. And about a day or two later, after he had posted this status up, he posted up a second status. And the second status said, it seems to me that by popular opinion, by popular vote, 
my friends on Facebook care more about how I'm losing weight than about the things that God has been teaching me. Because I make posts every couple of days because he's in a spot of real regrowth, real regeneration. I make a post every couple of days about how God has shown me something new and nobody says anything. But I put up a something that says I'm losing a little bit of weight and all of a sudden everybody's interested. And that got me thinking, do we really believe what we say we believe? I've noticed, too, that there's this new fascination in our society. One of my coworkers is in this same boat. We have this new place. I don't know if you've heard about it yet. It's a new religion. It's called the Iron Church. You heard about the Iron Church yet? No? Uh, you may more colloquially know it as a gym that people go and they worship the iron because they will pick up the heavy thing and then set it down and then pick up the heavy thing and then set it down again, and it's their form of worship. And they'll go four, five, six days a week. One, two, three hours. My buddy's in the CrossFit. Every time I see him, it's the first thing out of his mouth. Oh, I hit a new personal best for squats. And I was like, I don't care. Thank you, though. <laughs> Do I look like I lift heavy things? No, I don't. I leave heavy things where they belong. But there's this fascination in our culture where we're allowed to talk about fitness, we're allowed to talk about health, but we don't really talk about mission. And I think the reason we don't talk about mission is because we don't consider ourselves to be evangelists. We don't consider ourselves to be prophets. We don't consider ourselves to be bearers of the gospel. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at three different uh, texts, two scriptures and one uh, individual who I love and will name my son after someday, should I be so lucky to have a son. Uh, So the first thing I want to look at today is Purity of Heart. This is a book by Soren Kierkegaard, written in the 1840s. I think it should be mandatory reading for Christianity, that if you've not read this book yet, you should go pick it up. You can get it for free on the internet because it's so old, it's in public domain. So this is how the book opens. It says, Father in heaven, what is man without thee? What is all he knows, vast accumulation though it be, but a chipped fragment if he does not know thee? What is all his striving, could it even encompass a world but a half-finished work if he does not know thee. Thee the one who art one thing and who art all. So may thou give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing, to the heart sincerity to receive this understanding, to the will purity that only wills one thing. In prosperity may thou grant perseverance to will one thing, amid distractions, collectedness to will one thing, in suffering, patience to will one thing, O thou that giveth both the beginning and the completion, may thou early at the dawn of day give to the young man the resolution to will one thing. As the day wanes, may thou give to the old man renewed remembrance of his first resolution, that the first may be like the last, the last like the first, in the possession of a life that has willed only one thing. Alas, but this has indeed not come to pass, something has come in between. The separation of sin lies between. Each day and day after day, something is being placed in between. A delay, blockage, interruption, delusion, corruption. So in the time of repentance, may thou give courage once again to will one thing. True, it is an interruption of our ordinary task. We do lay down our work as though it were a day of rest, when the penitent, and it is only in a time of repentance, that the heavy-laden worker may be quiet in the confession of sin, is alone before thee in self-accusation. This is indeed an interruption, but it is an interruption that searches back into its very beginnings, that it might bind up anew that which sin has separated. 
that in its grief it might atone for lost time, that in its anxiety it might bring to completion that which lies before it. O thou that givest both the beginning and the completion, give thou victory in the day of need, so that what neither a man's burning wish nor his determined resolution may attain to may be granted unto him in the sorrowing of repentance to will only one thing. All right, stop there. This idea to will one thing is the subject of this entire book, Purity of Heart, that he writes. And I think one of the reasons that we don't share the gospel the way we share about the virtues of iron, the way that we don't care the same way as when our friend loses a few pounds, is that we don't will one thing. That, in fact, our will has been bifurcated or has been uh, broken into pieces. That sometimes we will those things that God does. Sometimes we will the things that we do. Sometimes we will things we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. In my mind, it's, it's an identity crisis. That when we have a will that has been shattered, when we are focusing on six, seven, eight, nine, ten things, this is the point where we have lost our identity. And as I was working through ordination, this really crazy thought hit me. And you can forgive me for being crazy and just pass it off as, well, he's the new guy they just brought in for a day. And just let it go. I am convinced that we are all prophets. I got this through actually writing a paper for ordination that's entitled Completing Christ's Mission. And I was studying the Great Commission to write this eight-page paper on four lines. And as I was doing that, I noticed some similarities because my background in seminary and in practice is an Old Testament teacher. And so I always see the Old Testament and the New Testament probably because the Old Testament is what the New Testament is built on. It's why they quote it so much. And as I was looking at it, I realized that in the Great Commission, I see the same pattern being given to the disciples as God gave to all the prophets in the Old Testament. And that pattern is this. There's this thing called the prophetic call. Now, the prophetic call happens in various ways to the different prophets, but it has some elements that are similar between each prophet. We're going to look specifically at Moses in Exodus 3. But you can also, if you're interested in your own time, check out Ezekiel 1 through 3, Isaiah 6, Jeremiah 1, 2, and 3. You can look at these different prophets whose story we have, whose narrative we have, and you'll see that God interacts with them similarly each time. And these are the elements that are similar. God always initiates with the prophet. The prophet does not initiate with God. God initiates with the prophet. So you'll see the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah in this place this time. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, to Jonah, to all of the minor prophets. This is what the Lord said. After that, the Lord always sends them to someone. The word of the Lord doesn't come to them so that they can sit in their house and feel nice, warm fuzzies. The word of the Lord doesn't come to them so that they can get enough self-control to deal with some sin in their life. The word of the Lord comes to them with a message to go and tell someone else. And the prophet invariably, every time, refuses. and says, oh God, I can't do that. Not me. God, don't you understand? I'm too young. I can't speak. I am a part of a people that's full of sin. There's no way that you could send me. Some prophets even go so far as to run away, and then God eats them with a fish. But I think that if we see this pattern of initiation, go, refusal, 
the favorite and best part for me is this third bit, or fourth bit, the assurance. Every single time, God doesn't tell the prophet, go or else. He says, go and I will be with you when you go. You won't go alone. I will be present with you as you go. So if we look at Exodus 3, which is the next slide, we'll see how this works with Moses. Apologies for the font. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came back to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. If we could read the bolded together, if you can see it. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Here's your initiation. Here's God saying, I'm getting your attention. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like God does have to set something on fire for me to take notice. But notice that God calls him out of the bush. It's not Moses out in the wilderness saying, oh, if I could only find a burning bush today. If only I could see something. If you, look, if you think back, uh, you just finished a thing on Samuel, right? If you think back when uh, he's young, and he hears a voice calling him, Samuel, Samuel, God's initiating. He's another prophet. Here you have him initiating Moses, and look at Moses' response. He says, here I am. I wonder how often when God initiates with us, how often is our response, here I am? When he's calling you, when he's reaching out, how often is our response, here I am? And Moses' response, God has to warn him of his... uh, exuberance to go forward. He says, do not come closer. Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is so important. This reaction, when you're in the presence of God, God most high, when he initiates, when he reaches out to you, that Face first, on the ground. Immediate snap response to say, woe is me, I am undone, for my eyes have seen the king. Is appropriate. Because God is holy, and we are not. And it might be why we get this go and refusal from Moses. It's because he realizes that next to God, who is he? So there's the initiation. Then we have the refusal. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And if we could, again, together. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So 
so now go. I've heard your cry, I've heard your prayers, now get up and go. You're a part, you're an actor in this relationship. You are not someone who's just along for the ride, Moses. Get up and go. If you think to Jonah, the Lord said, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city. If you think about Jeremiah, it says, go, I've chosen you. Before you're even out of the womb, I chose you to go and be my witness to the people. If you think about Isaiah, if you think about Ezekiel, they're all told to go. I have a sneaking suspicion that they're going to be told to go in the Great Commission as well. And I have a sneaking suspicion that if God said it in the Old Testament, and God says it again in the New Testament, and it happens to the disciples, and they tell others to do the same thing, that we probably have a part to play in this as well. And I love Moses' response. Thank you. Who am I that I should go tell Steve about Jesus? Steve knows me. Steve knows I have junk. You remember Moses. Moses killed a guy, right? Like he saw a guy hitting another guy, and he went over there and just straight up killed him and buried him in the sand and then ran for his life and he's currently on the lamb hiding out from Pharaoh and God's saying I choose you, go. And he says who am I? I'm a murderer. I stutter. I'm young, I'm weak, I have no credibility. Who am I? Who are you? And he's not sending him to just some guy, he's sending him to the king. The ruler of the most prosperous nation in the world at that point. He's sending him to him, saying, let my people go. With a very unpopular message. Very unpopular message. And let's read this together as well. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? He almost denies God again. He's like, No, I still really don't want to do this. And then we'll read this together as well. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this is really interesting because this phrase is extremely important in the Old Testament. This is the first time where God reveals himself. He self-discloses, this is my name. Before this point, any reference that we have to God is in a general sense, a sort of God most high. But now God is giving his personal name. And the thing about English is there's no one-to-one translation from Hebrew, especially ancient Hebrew, to modern English. So much so that when the Jewish Publication Society tries to put this into English, they don't translate this phrase in 314. They don't translate it. They just transliterate the Hebrew into English and say, and here you go, because there's no shot at translating this. And the reason they do that is because of the very nature of the language itself. And so this could just as well mean, besides I am who I am, it could mean I am where I am. Because the middle word that's linking the two of those has multiple meanings. And one of those meanings could be, I am where I am. And where is he? 
with Moses. He just got done telling Moses, I will go with you when you go. And so his name could be, I will be where I will be, and where I am is with you. With you, my follower, my believer. I'm present with you. I am with you. And what does Jesus say later? I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but Jesus says later, I will be with you. Abide in me as I abide in the Father. Be part of that. It's beautiful to me because God, unlike unlike so many other paths we could follow, promises His presence. He promises to be with us. That when He sends us, we don't go alone. But we go with God. We're getting on board with what He's doing. Alright, so this is what prophets do then. The main job description of a prophet is a covenant mediator. This is, uh, if you're familiar with the language of the Old Testament, you have covenants, like between Abraham and God, David and God, which are agreements, they're treaties. And what covenants often need is a mediator, because there's one party aggrieves the other party. And so the prophet's job is to come into the relationship and say, you have broken your covenant with this other party. We need to fix this relationship. And so you'll see prophets calling people to repent. So you think Nathan with David. You know, David is not with his troops at war. He's instead walking around on the roof of his palace, and he's got his binoculars out, and he's looking around the city and beholding women folk about the city. And Nathan calls him into repentance because after that, David also gets Uriah murdered. And still God sends him a prophet and asks him to repent. You can think about the instruction in the matters of the law, like with Moses, where the law is given through him. The law is reinterpreted. They're called back to the law through the prophets. So they're being called to turn. Repentance literally means as you're walking this way, when you repent, it's when you turn around and start going the other way. So they're calling people back to the law. They're calling people to repentance. They work with spiritual power. So a dramatic example you can think of is Elijah as he's raising the widow's son, as he's getting the raven to bring him food, as he's having the, uh, the widow's oil and flour not run out, as he's calling fire down from Mount Carmel to consume the sacrifice, that they have this essence of spiritual power about them. And lastly, that God is always with them. Even when they doubt, even when they refuse, God is still with the prophets. So Elijah runs away. Jonah runs away. Moses has his doubts, needs Aaron to talk for him, has all of these issues that God is still with them. That in all things, they're not alone. God comes to them in that still quiet after the fire, after the earthquake. That even if you could consider uh, even Job, that God answers him. That we serve a God that's not only transcendent, but imminent. That he's here with us. And so this is the Great Commission. This is the thing that really sets the CMA apart as a group. This is part of our DNA. It's part of what we do. It's part of what my wife and I's future is. We actually, as a denomination, instead of supporting individual missionaries, we pool our finances together. Every church gives about 10%, some more, some less, to the Great Commission Fund, with which we send out missionaries. And this fund is so important to us because, believe it or not, a third of the CMA membership is overseas in the Congo. 
You get like another 15 or 20% in Vietnam. We have national churches in Africa and Southeast Asia that send out missionaries to other places in their continents using the same strategy. We don't really send people to Sub-Saharan Africa anymore. We send a few people as teachers. That's about it. But you you don't go to the jungle anymore. That's not a thing that we do because we have churches in those countries that have local people from those places going and doing that. And it's all supported through the Great Commission Fund. And so as we look at this here, again, we're going to read the bold together. So then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So again, you see God initiating. Jesus is not with them. He tells them to go somewhere. They diligently obey. They go. He shows up. I love the scriptures because it says they doubt it. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. He's talked to them, and they still doubt. They still doubt. And he still meets with them anyway. He meets with them in their doubts. He meets with them in their weaknesses. And so you have their sort of quasi-refusal of saying, "Ah, I still doubt this is really what you want me to do, God. Uh, I'm not sure. I'll go to the mountain, but I'm not going to go, you know, everywhere. They still doubt. And we doubt. I doubt. I mean, I went to seminary, I teach Bible, I speak at churches on Sundays, and I still have doubts. It happens. It's natural. Doubt is not the uh, antipathy of faith. It's not the antithesis of faith. Apathy is. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Apathy is. Doubt is a natural part of belief. It wouldn't be belief without doubt. If you didn't consider it, if you didn't wrestle with it, if you didn't struggle, it wouldn't be faith anymore. And so you have, their, again, their own initiation, their own refusal. God is reaching out to them saying, go, and they're saying, oh, I'm still nervous. Jesus, it'll just be so awkward if I share the gospel. It'll be so awkward. Can you imagine in today's PC world if I just, like, asked somebody if they knew about Jesus? It might get weird. I don't want it to get weird. Not at work, God. Come on. You doubt if it's worth it. You doubt if willing that one thing, if living out Christ and Christ crucified, you doubt if that's worth it. I doubt if that's worth it. I, can't, I, get, I don't have the luxury of hiding, but that's because of what I do. You know, I'll try to hide. And somebody will say, hey, what are you doing? I teach. What do you teach? <laughs> Best reaction I ever got to that, I was playing disc golf. I don't know if anybody plays disc golf, but I do. And I was playing, and a gentleman with a huge beard, like, oh, so what do you do? I'm like, oh, I teach. Oh, what do you teach? <laughs> Bible. Oh, you believe those Bronze Age fairy tales? Oh, here we go. I'm on this guy's card for the next four hours, and I'm going to have to deal with this. All right, let's go. And we talked, and it got weird. But at the end of the four hours that we spent together, he won. The end of the four hours we spent together, he left me saying this. He said, you know, you're like, you have answers to stuff no Christian's ever been able to answer me before. 
thanks for sharing the card with me. To go from Bronze Age fairy tales to, that was pleasant, thank you, I'll talk to you again another time. Did it get weird in the middle? Yes, it got weird in the middle because he was saying some very hurtful things to me. But I had an answer because I know what God's called me to do. I know the one thing that I have to will is Christ and Christ crucified and spreading that gospel. Next slide, please. God has initiated relationship and communication with all of us through scripture, through prayer, through hearing God's voice. Yeah, I'm one of those weirdos who says you can hear God's voice. I'm sorry if that's outside of your comfort zone. It's still outside my comfort zone. It feels weird every time it happens. I still don't know what to do with it. I'm still wrestling with whether or not I'm insane or God's really talking to me. It's a struggle because it's not part of our modern, Western, scientific, rationalistic worldview. And I'm a very logical person, and God's not terribly logical sometimes. And none of us feel up to the task because we all feel that separation of sin. Remember that opening passage I was reading on a purity of heart? That separation of sin that comes between us and God, we all feel that. And that causes us to not want to step into the weirdness. You're like, ah, God, you know, I've sinned recently. This isn't going to be a good time. I should wait and maybe get my life together, and then I'll share with Steve later. And we all doubt. I know we all doubt if it's worth it. I know we do. Guaranteed we all doubt that it's worth sharing it. Because we don't. If we didn't doubt, we wouldn't not share because you'll share about anything that you love. You'll share about the gym. You'll share about a movie. You'll share about a book. You'll share about a car. You'll share about a cell phone. You'll share about a child. You'll share about someone else's kid. You'll share about anything that you love. And because we doubt, we are afraid to share about this. Because we doubt that it's as good as we say that it is. We doubt that it's as good to us as we think that it is. And that's why we all need God to tell us these things and to give us the last thing. So let's do this again. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go to all nations. All means all. Guess what? That means all means Bethlehem. Not just this Bethlehem, but that Bethlehem. That means here. All nations. We live in America. All nations come to us. I live in Philadelphia. No two people look, look alike as you go down the street on our block. It's you're changing every house. All nations come to us. So we go. Teaching them. That might mean you might have to ask somebody to come to church on a Sunday. I know that's super weird, but you might have to do that because how else do you bring teaching? You can't take somebody a place you've never gone. Baptizing them. Amazing to me. This is a side sermon, a little freebie for the day. Amazing to me how few people actually go through getting baptized when it's very clear within scriptures that's one of the first things that happens. You look at Philip, Ethiopian eunuch, you know, he's saved for like all of three seconds. He's like, oh, there's water over there. Let's go get baptized right now. teaching them, baptizing them. And I love this part of the go in Acts 1.8 when he says you'll go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. Just like the prophets who are taught to teach. Just like the prophets who are taught to make people repent 
through the things like baptism, they also have power. That the reason that it's worth it and the way through doubt is through the power that God gives us. That His presence with us brings with it spiritual power. If my wife and I don't have people stateside praying for us that we can move in spiritual power in post-Christian Europe, we are not going to see converts in post-Christian Europe. If we go without power, what good are we? Frankly, I, I think somebody, a youth, put it this way. If I have two options, I can take Tylenol or pray to get rid of a headache, which one am I going to do first? I'm going to take the Tylenol because the Tylenol works. If I come to your country and you have Tylenol and I say, well, I can pray for your headache, I better work better than the Tylenol. Right? Elsewise, why believe? I have Tylenol. I don't need your prayer. This spiritual power element is super, super important, but that's probably also a side thing. Next one. This problem of God telling you to change things last minute. Do we have another slide? It's frozen. Okay. Oh, there it is. And then we end on the assurance. This is what makes it all worth it. This is what makes everything, the weirdness, the awkwardness, the risk of stepping out in faith and saying, I will pray for your headache, is this right here. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What better promise do we need than that when I go, when it gets weird, Jesus will be there in the weirdness with me. That when I go and it gets awkward, that he'll be in the awkwardness with me. That when I go and when I do step out in faith and I do say, I'm willing to pray for you for X and actually do it, not just like the polite Christian thing, I'll only pray about that and I'll get back to you. But like the actual, like, no, let me pray with you right now. Let me pray with you right now. You know, the only person I've ever had tell me that they wouldn't let me pray for them was a Christian. Christians are the only people that are like, nah, I don't really need prayer for that. Anytime I've ever run across somebody who's a non-believer and I say, hey, can I pray with you? You know, they share, like, this is the thing they're struggling with. They're like, yeah, sure, whatever. You talk to a Christian, like, hey, can I pray for you? And they're like, nah, I'm all right. I don't need to talk to Jesus for me. I'm going to do it on my own time. It's fine. But Jesus is with us. And if Jesus is with us, that means there's power. And if there's power, that means there's hope. And if there's hope, that means we can get over doubt. And if we can get over doubt, it means we can share the gospel, the Great Commission. We can go where God tells us to go and do the things that God has told us to do. We can will one thing. That one thing is the good. And what is the best thing we can do in any situation is to love that individual by telling them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter, no matter how weird, how awkward, how strange, how just whacked out that is. But if we do that, that's willing one thing. Just one thing. What can I do in this situation to bring the gospel to the front? How can I love this person into the kingdom of God? Because you're not going to argue them in You're not going to just present them with, oh, here are clearly the facts. Come be in the kingdom. But you can love them into the kingdom. And if God is acting in you in power, they're going to have incentive to join. Because there's rewards for joining. And that's God is with you too. And if God is with you, then things start happening. Eh. All right, so i got two stories, and then I'll end. I should have told you beforehand that I used to lecture for three hours at a shot. So I'm really trying to truncate a lot of ideas down in a short thing. I love that three-hour block because you can really do something with that. Get a 15-minute break in the middle, get some water, come back, and good to go.
So I got two stories for you, one in 2010 and one in 2014. Uh, and then it's my wife and I's story together, and I'm going to try to be brief. But it's about Jesus, and I have trouble being brief when it's about Jesus, so forgive me. Don't invite me back if you don't like it. In 2010, I was in seminary, and while I was in seminary, one of my teachers was saying, professors, uh, Dr. Ron Walborn, who's the dean of the seminary, does a bunch of stuff in the area. You can have a chance to hear him speak at some point on your own uh, through College of Prayer and other things. He said the following, as we're sitting, I mean, we're in fluorescent lights, the little, like, desks, you know, with the thing, you take notes. He says, some of you in this room believe that God does not speak to you. We're going to pray, and we're going to ask for God to speak to you. And I sat in my chair, and I said, yeah, God speaks to people today, sure, sure, prof. In a, in a, in a classroom, nonetheless, whatever, fine. And so I very sarcastically said to God, all right, God, if you're here, I understand, speak, I'm listening. And he spoke to me. And it about knocked me out of my chair because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Because God told me, clear as a bell, you're going to go to the desert. And I said, pardon? (laughs) Excuse me? I'm not going to the desert. This is 2010. The Middle East is not a happy place right now. Why in the world would you send me there? I'm not going. And a week passed. I'm back in the same class, three-hour block class, wonderful time period. And we're sitting in the class again, and Ron Walborn stands up front again, and he says, some of you last week did not think that God spoke to you, and he did, and you told him no. We're going to pray again so that God can get things right with you. And so we were praying again, and then a little bit more serious this time, because I was like, all right. God, you know I don't want to go. You know I don't want to do this thing that you're asking me to do. I'm terrified. at the I've never left the country before. How dare you ask me to go to the Middle East? And I'm praying again. I get a vision of mountains. Not like PA mountains, you know how they're nice and green and rolly, but like sharp, brown, nothing living on them mountains. And God told me, it's okay. I'll be with you when you go. I had... See, that was in December or January. I was going to leave May 5th. So I had about five months. I raised $6,000, got my first passport, got my plane tickets, flew and spent nine weeks, ten weeks in Jordan in one of the hottest places on earth. I never appreciated water like that trip. And I'll tell you what, God was with me the whole time I was there. I was in danger. I had children throwing rocks at me. I got lost in a city where I didn't know the language, didn't know any way of communicating with the people that were there. I was lost for four hours. I got home. I was alone. I didn't have anybody with me except God. During that time where I was lost, I sat down and drank tea with a man for about 30 minutes. Neither of us could speak a word to the other person. He could just tell I was lost, and eventually I figured out how to say the town that I was from. And he was like, that way, and I was not even close. A taxi picked me up on the way home, dropped me off, no fare. God was with me every step of the way. I was outside the city of Jerusalem trying to walk around the walls, and I accidentally walked into East Jerusalem, which was a mistake. You don't want to do that if you go over there by yourself. And some children surrounded me outside the walls of Jerusalem, picked up stones that were as big as one of these cups that you're drinking out of, and started throwing them at me from right here. And as the first rocks started to hit me, I decided it was time to leave and ran away. And then as I'm standing outside of the walls of Jerusalem, having just been stoned by a bunch of youths, I realized that God was with me. Because that's the city that kills his prophets. 
And now they've tried to kill me because God is with me. In 2014, I was praying, shocker, I was praying again. It's a repetitive theme since I've been at True Vine that prayer is important. That's another side note. I was praying again, and as I was praying, I was saying, God, I don't want to be a missionary because I don't. (laughs) Sounds horrible. You move away from all of your family, all of your friends, all of your resources, all of your connections, all of your networks, and you leave and go somewhere else. That sounds horrible. And I was saying, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a missionary. I don't want to go. And I sat in silence for about 15 minutes in my prayer spot, and as I'm sitting there in silence, I hear God say to me, my word will be a lamp unto your feet. And I was like, yes, Lord, I can pray into that. Because that can take me anywhere. I can be a good steward. I can go earn some money. And I can send somebody else overseas. I don't have to go. I'll let somebody else do that. And at the end of that prayer, God spoke to me again. And he said, go you therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you. And that is the only reason that I'm still on this track. Because it is hard. Being a missionary for the CMA is like running a triathlon with a person strapped to your back because there's everything getting in your way of going. And if God didn't say, go and I'll be with you, I wouldn't do it. If I could get into heaven without being a missionary and without going, I would. But I really don't want to get eaten by a big fish. And so, I have a few questions for you. Yes, there is homework. Sorry, teacher, there's homework. Ask yourself these things this week. How has God initiated with me? Where has he told me to go? Why have I been telling him no? And do you want God to be with you? Because that's what he says. He says, I'll be with you when you go. And I'm going to start where I began. Father in heaven, what is man without thee? What is all that he knows, vast accumulation though it be, but a chip fragment if he does not know thee? What is all his striving? Could it even encompass the world but a half-finished work if he does not know thee? Thee the one who art one thing, who art all. So may thou give us to the intellect wisdom to comprehend the one thing, to the heart sincerity to receive this understanding, to the will purity that wills only one thing. In prosperity may thou grant perseverance to will one thing, amid distractions collectedness to will one thing, in suffering patience to will one thing. O thou that giveth both the beginning and the completion, may thou early at the dawn of day give the young man the resolution to will one thing. As the day wanes, may thou give to the old man a renewed remembrance of his first resolution, that the first may be like the last, and the last like the first, in possession of a life that has willed only one thing. Alas, but this has indeed not come to pass. Something has come in between. The separation of sin lies in between. Each day and day after day, something is being placed in between. Delay, blockage, interruption, delusion, corruption. I'm going to add my own debt. So, in this time of repentance, may thou give courage once again to will one thing. True, it is an interruption of our ordinary task. We do lay down our work as though it were a day of rest, when the penitent, and it is only in the time of repentance that the heavy-laden worker may be quiet in the confession of sin, is alone for thee in self-accusation. This is indeed an interruption, but it is an interruption that searches back to its very beginnings, that it might bind up anew that which sin has separated that in its grief it might atone for lost time, that in its anxiety it might bring to completion that which lies before it. O thou that givest both the beginning and the completion, thou victory in the day of need, so that when neither a man's burning wish nor his determined resolution may attain to, may be granted unto him the sorrowing of repentance to will only one thing. Will one thing. The good. What is the best? The good, the thing that you can will, to bring the gospel wherever it is that you go.
The good we can will is to go where God sends us and trust that he is with us when we go. We're all prophets of the Most High. Go ye therefore to wherever it is that he's sending you.